This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 588. And the quote of the day is, the art of life is a constant readjustment to our surroundings. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Rafini here, episode 588, and I got an episode for you, and I've been pumped about this episode ever ever since I lined it up. We got a true pioneer in the drumming world, in the hip-hop world, Mr. Keith LeBlanc, and he's he, he started his career with the originators of hip-hop, with the Sugar Hill Gang, Grandmaster Flash, and Melly Mel, and released his own record which was called Malcolm X No Sellout. It was one of the first sample-based releases ever. He also went on to be a studio musician for Tommy Boy Records. He's featured on a ton of tracks on The Pretty Hate Machine by Nine Inch Nails and is one of the guys who was often sampled for a ton of hip-hop tracks. And we talk about where that style came from and the influence of funk and jazz and things like that in hip hop and and how DJs started cutting up records and how that influenced what they were playing on the drums and vice versa. So it's a really interesting conversation and perspective from a guy who was there from the beginning while this style was being created. So I'm super excited to share it with you. I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with Keith LeBlanc. Keith, how are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you, Nick? I am fantastic. I've been, since we've chatted, I've been really excited about this conversation because I am a huge, huge, huge hip-hop fan, particularly old-school hip-hop. And as far as I'm concerned, you are one of the innovators, if not the innovator of of hip-hop drumming. So I want to get into that uh, pretty deep. The interesting thing to me is always understanding who people were listening to before and if you listen to you know someone like uh, steve jordan he was listening to uh you know he was listening to particular music but for you a lot of the stuff that you did was so new and so innovative that there wasn't anyone to reference beforehand so what were you listening to like when you were coming up what were you listening to in the household i'm always interested to hear that well the first uh, song I learned on the drums was uh, um, "Whipped Creams and uh, Whipped Cream and Other Delights" off of uh, her the Herb Albert album "Whipped Cream and Other Delights." I forget the name of the song, but uh, I later found out it was uh, um, um, the Wrecking Crew doing it. Mm-hmm. A lot of the um, recording. So that was the first song I listen to and then at the time the pop music of that day was really you know um james brown aretha franklin the meters uh um you know uh, archie bell and the drells uh war mm-hmm. all that all the r&b stuff basically i bought all those records and learned all those songs, but, you know, played along with it. Like I was in the band. And, right. Uh, what year and, are we talking? Oh, it's early sixties. Uh, hmm. Maybe, uh, 
Yeah, uh, 1960. Okay. Uh, 1961. Then around 62, the Beatles hit. And, uh, well, really, it was after the Beatles. The Beatles hit, and that was the reason why, you know, I was always tapping on stuff. Uh Uh, And uh, I had figured out how to subdivide rhythms. And then uh, I saw Ringo Starr on the television, you know, and I... Ed Sullivan? Ed Sullivan, and I made a drum set out of coffee cans. Nice. And I was off. And then uh, I went to uh, grammar school, took... uh, My parents got me a practice pad, some sticks and lessons. Mm -hmm. And I had to play that for a year before there was any hope of getting a drum. But at school, I joined orchestra, and I was really lucky. There was a real good drummer there upperclassmen and uh i heard him play a beat on the drums and uh you know they had zildjian cymbals they were old ludwig drums and i'd never heard anybody play a beat on the drums you know standing right next to it and i and i can still remember it it uh took me over and then uh i went home and learned a beat on my you know using the floor and my practice pad and i went to school early the orchestra early the next day and set up the drums uh the orchestra band leader let me set up the drums he was setting up music stands and i started playing the beat and i could do it and it sounded good and i started throwing in fills and it was like you know i fit in this world perfectly and then i got a tap on the shoulder and it was you know uh the upperclassmen this guy named tommy reamer and he really liked me and he kind of took me under his wing and showed me what he knew and uh, then i just played with records like uh, after that and there was a lot of i was really tuned in on uh funk i just liked it i didn't mm-hmm. know i didn't know it was funk i just knew that those records grabbed me and uh because it's because it's amazing <laughs> and, well, that's how yeah, i feel anyway <laughs> well it just grabbed me so i would play me with too. the you know it was no fun unless i actually learned the drum part Mm-hmm. And then I would improvise on top of that. But as long as I was in the groove, that was exciting to me, you know, right. being part being part of that music. And uh, then, you know, I progressed to the Beatles hit and I learned all the Ringo stuff. And uh, then, you know, then the whole fusion thing came on. You know, first it was like Chicago kind of broke through and I learned all uh seraphins uh i forget his first name it was it danny. Bob? danny danny, danny seraphins i learned all the drum parts and then uh, the interesting thing about chicago is that i think a lot of people look at them as like as this big like a, a pop band but man they were they were a funk band they were a fusion band back in the day well they really played and i was lucky yeah. because they played at the high school right at the end of my street so i um they knew uh one of the sisters there was a catholic high school and they did it for free so i was you know standing backstage watching this guy so it was it was monumental for me and then after that i really got into the whole fusion thing that was happening you know because there was a groundbreaking record coming out every day and i i loved harvey mason and uh billy cobham and i was just you know soaking up all that and uh then from that, I started playing in uh, hotel bands and things like that. And I, I started playing with fusion bands, lots of different people. But 
all the stuff I was practicing never really fit right with the people I was playing with. And uh, I uh, got this, uh, this, this guy came up to me in a club. His name is Harold Sargent. He just passed away recently. Um, and he, he played on one of, like, one of the most sampled records for hip hop there is by the Skull Snaps called It's a New Day. And he walked up to me and said, I got just the guys for you to play with. And he introduced me to uh, Doug Wimbish and Skip McDonald. And uh, I, I remember I went to uh, Doug's house for an audition. And I brought a snare drum and a bass drum and a hi-hat, one cymbal. And they liked me, luckily. And so everything I've been practicing, you know, my whole life fit perfectly with these guys, you know, because they were, they were recording when I met them, they, they had already been in the studio and done all that. So, uh, and, uh, not long after I met them, uh, we went straight to Sugar Hill, you know, and, uh, Sugar Hill records. And I started recording all the hip hop stuff. And to me, it was, uh, it didn't seem like anything new to me. It just, uh, it just seemed like the natural progression of funk. Right. Um, it just, you know, just natural way for it to go. It just seemed natural for me. So mm -hmm. I was kind of making it up as I went along. And uh, also the probably, and I recorded there for quite a while. So luckily the arranger, uh, it's pretty good music ethic there. He would, you know, he'd plot out the drum parts. He'd write them out. But, you know, we'd always try him out and he might have me reverse things or I might add. I always added something to make it work because um, it was usually just bare bones or it was a, a record. Uh, it was one bar of what the DJs were mixing in New York, you know, and mm -hmm. we'd, make, we'd make a whole record out of it. So I just worked on. Um, uh, what I could use in those records, you know, there wasn't, you know, the occasionally I could get to use some toms and I, I could, and occasionally I could use a cymbal crash, but mostly it was hi-hat, snare and kick where you could really embellish the rhythm and embellish the music without interrupting the groove at mm -hmm. all, you know, so yeah. the groove was relentless and, you know, and I kind of learned on the job, you know, I, I hadn't done much recording before I went there. So instantly I was playing with a click. I remember they asked me, do you know how to play with a click? And I said, sure. And I'd never tried it before. <laughs> you know, I, I was, I was just that lucky. Like something I would do. Oh I yeah. Just, I play with a click all the time. Yeah. I was just lucky. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the rappers would hum me beats that they wanted. DJs would come in, but, I would always take it a step further. I would always try to push, you know, my fusion head in there. And because uh, there really, like you said, there weren't any rules at the time. And uh, we were making them up as we went along, really. Right. So we were, we were just trying to come up with the funkiest track for the rappers to rap over, really. Mm -hmm. And, and um, 
I think the only other guy doing it at the time was this guy, Pumpkin L. Uh, yeah, Pumpkin. I don't know his last name. Pumpkin L. Elroy. I think it's Elroy. He was, uh, you know, doing uh, hip hop drums at the time too, and he grabbed onto drum machines around the same time I did as well. But I never, I never got to meet the guy at all. Hmm. And, um, but. Yep, a lot. A lot of the. It was interesting. A lot of the stuff that uh, um, drummers were. Um, and well, I learned a lot on the road with that whole crew too, because, you know, I I had never done. Uh, I had done funk gigs with the band Wood Brass of Steel, which Harold Sargent put basically gave me his drum chair in that band, hmm. and. Uh, you know, it was a big horn band. It was really funky. And they had recorded it all platinum, which they changed the name to Sugar Hill Records. Uh, but before that, they were called all platinum. They had done albums there before. So they were, you know, legends by the time I met them. Right. And so I was like, you know, the new kid. And uh, I remember when I was first got in the band, uh, Skip was always trying to work with me. Cause I would fill every hole. <laughs> <You know? laughs> if there was a hole there, I was on it. You know. Right. Like, oh, okay. So um, he would uh, basically what he was asking me for was more space. And uh, one night we were playing this after hours club, one of the ones we did, and Tyrone Lampkin came in, uh, the drummer for Parliament Funkadelic, and mm -hmm. asked if he could sit in. And, you know, and I was thrilled to let him sit in. You know, and uh, what he did, he didn't play a lot. But, but I watched him and everything that Skip McDonald was asking me to do made sense, <laughs> you know, watching this guy play. And then we were on the road opening up for Parliament Funkadelic, Cameo, all the great funk bands of the time, Rick James, uh, you know, nice. all, all these huge bands. So I was just soaking it all up. I mean, we were on the road opening up for Parliament Funkadelic for about, six or seven months and no one knew about dennis chambers back then and uh i did i was standing in back of the drum riser every night right. <laughs> watch, right. watching him you know because he, he who was he playing with then was he playing with he wasn't playing with people he was he was playing with the brides of funkenstein got you. but but halfway through the tour he ended up playing for the p-funk band too so uh, haven't they had like they've had like 87 drummers, right? <laughs> well, there were two other drummers on a set, but they they got demoralized by Dennis. You know, Dennis wasn't trying to do that or anything, but they, you know, instead of being inspired by what this guy was doing, they, you know, they kind of got demoralized by it. Right. <laughs> I, I can see why. And I was really inspired by what was Den Dennis was doing, and, and uh, he liked me, you know. So, uh, I, like, all of Parliament really liked the band because we could really play. As a matter of fact, uh, they tried to get, they tried to steal Doug when they were having uh, trouble with their bass player. And I, I remember Dennis let me sound check one time on the uh, P Funk drums, and it was fun, right. you know, being being around those guys. And you know, we were open. We would do gigs with the uh, Trouble Funk and DC and all these major funk bands. And really it was a, it was a whole different thing, you know, playing these big funk festivals, like 20 bands on the show. 
Right. And, uh, and every drummer is killing, you know, and here I come, this little white guy, and uh, say, you know, I had to prove it. And it's funny, you know, music transcends everything. So if you could play, that's what, that's what you speak with. And uh, that's, that's how I was able to survive and thrive in that environment because music goes way past race. And uh, so it was a, a real good experience. Mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up, you know, with the whole hip hop thing. But I, I had always learned to play like every style. I was interested in every style of music mm-hmm. and I wanted to do it good because I, I just wanted to be a good session drummer. That was my right. goal. And uh, so that was part of it. You know, that was good experience. But, you know, I had to progress from there. And uh, so after that, I, I uh, started, you know, got into drum machines because they were taking over. They mm-hmm. were taking the work away. So I said, you know, I could program one of these better than any. Right, right. <laughs> It's any of these engineers, you know, there's so, a, I, I was talking to Omar, I had Omar Akeem on a couple of weeks ago and he had mentioned the same thing where drum machines were coming out and it, people were complaining about it and saying, Oh, this is taking everyone's jobs. And he was like, well, I'll just learn how to use them and learn, you know, and, and, and learn how to adapt and, uh, and be the guy who who's known for this. So I think that's, yeah. an, that's an important aspect. Um, quickly, I wanted to touch on something that you brought up before, before we get too far away from it. Um, you had mentioned about loving funk and, and, you know, growing up playing funk and listening to it. And when you think about the players like yourself and other people who were around in the beginning of all these hip hop records getting made, particularly with like Sugar Hill Gang and things like that, uh, I always wonder what came first. Was it, was it, the players playing funk stuff and then other hip hop artists were hearing that. And so they went out and started sampling other funk tunes and that's how funk and because funk and hip hop are so interrelated, especially in early hip hop where it's all old school funk that's sampled on all these hip hop records. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's always like a chicken or an egg thing. Like what came first? Was it the players who were, who were playing that style of music and just adapted it and created this thing called hip hop. And then all the other hip hop artists mimic that, or was it the other way around where the hip hop artists were just sampling the hip hop stuff. And then the players were like, Oh, maybe I should start playing more funky stuff on this, on this hip hop. on these uh, Well, uh, that's an, that's a really interesting question. Um, well, basically the first guy to cut, uh, what they call it cutting a beat. So they pick out four bars out of one of these funk records or two bars and they have two copies of it and they switch from record to record. So they could just play a one four bar section forever. Right. And, and cool Herc, a DJ in, in uh, New York was the first one to start doing that. And then he would start hollering over the beat you know, to get the crowd going, but it was basically, a, you know, a dance thing, a disco thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then the rappers started joining in on the, um, hollering over the beat. And so the beat had to come first. Um, and when we were recording, uh, at Sugar Hill, they would basically take 
four bars of something that was really hot in New York that all the DJs were mixing of a record. And then they'd have an arranger, this guy, Jigs Chase, he'd write an arrangement of that for a particular rap group. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we would have to perform that. So our idea was to try and, my idea anyway, was to try and play it way better than the original record. or play it a little different because I had I had more room because it was usually stripped down, so there was room for the raps. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was like uh, me and uh, and Skip McDonald and Doug Wimish were basically like a human sampler right. before there there were samplers. I mean, the only way DJs could do it was by cutting the records up. There was no samplers around, mm-hmm. so uh, we were doing it in the studio, you know, and then, uh, you know, I, I do something, a beat on, on a record. Then I'd hear four records with the same Pete on it, (laughs) like a week later. Um, so I, I don't know. I was always looking for something new. I don't know why I was always like a little bit ahead in any production I've done or anything like that. It's always been a little bit, you know, it, my, I've come first with it, and then someone else has come second, and made money with it. Right. You know, so would would you consider would you consider that record, particularly with Rapper's Delight on it? Like, was that the first? That, that's like the first rap record, right? Yeah, that would be the first rap record. I it? mean, Rapper what? Rapper's Delight. I didn't play on Rapper's Delight, right? Uh, and Skip McDonald and Doug Wimish didn't play on it either. It was this band from. Uh, Philadelphia named Positive Force, mm. and because they Sugar Hill had called up Skip and Doug to, they didn't know about me, and they called Harold Sargent. He told them, "Oh, they got a great drummer now." And he came over. He said, "Sylvia wants you to go up there and cut some records." And Skip and Doug, you know, they had got robbed the last time they did that, so they said no. So I'm the new guy. I couldn't say anything, but. When we heard Rapper's Delight and saw it was a Sylvia's name was on it, we thought then the guys saw, okay, maybe there's some money there. So we we cut everything after that, gotcha. but we didn't cut that. Right. But the album we recorded, it was the worst sounding album. I'm you know. <laughs> I I I wanted to play on an album, but their studio was like it might have been hip in the sixties, you know, right. but now it was just old and nasty. So it's all mid range, no top tops or bottoms so but uh, sometimes you know if you have a good idea or a good song it really doesn't matter what it sounds like you know people mm-hmm. are gonna they're gonna like it or they're not yeah so rapper's delight was one of those songs and that first rap album was recorded on the same gear so you know right. no matter how we bled <laughs> it yeah. still sounded like in the in the frequency range of hand claps, you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing made it out of that, right? Uh, and you know, but it was exciting to play on a record and then hear it on a radio a week later. You right, know, that was uh, that was what I wanted to do. But but was it? Were you guys calling it rap then? Um. Well, we called the it? we called the guys rappers, right? And and you know, we just called it them tracks you know whatever we were cutting was tracks right i I remember 
I remember we cut something for Dick Sean, the comedian. There was all kinds of people came through there and uh, did a lot of tracks with Bunny Siegler. Um, I know we cut at Philly International for for Lou Rawls. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. At, that was freaked me out because one of my you know all time heroes on the drums back then was uh, Narada Michael Walden, right? And so I go sit on the drums, you know, I'm getting the drums ready. Yeah. <laughs> and, in, and in one room walks Michael Walden, you know. So I, I immediately got off the drums. I thought they had, you know, got him in at the last minute to play drums. Right. He goes, no, 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 sit down, sit down. He goes, I hired you. <laughs> That's amazing. He's such a sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, oh, like, he was so man, cool, he man. the nicest dude in the world. And he said, no, 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 man, I, I heard the track. I like what you how you guys cut it. You just And I said, I told him, I said, man, I'm going to be scared to death playing in front of you. <laughs> and he said, Keith, you know, he said, I like what you do. So just do what you do. Don't worry about that. Nice. And, I mean, he uh, had to replace Billy Cobham. So I'm sure he understands what the pressure can be like, you know, in Mahavishnu. I'm sure he can, you know, but <laughs> I was just blessed that in that circumstance, I was. Uh, given a wonderful person to produce the record, you know, right. so there, there, there was all kinds of things. We got to play with a lot of people went through there. Um, I can and, see how, how Narda Michael Walden was a great producer because of the way he makes you feel when you're around him. I had, hmm. when I had him on the podcast, uh, I, we did it at his studio at Tarpan studios and he, he just walks in and he has this presence about him that just puts you at ease. And mm. my guess is that's why so many people loved working with him. He's a hell of a songwriter. He's a phenomenal drummer for, for sure. But he just, mm. I don't know if you felt the same way, but he just has like, I felt like he had this ease about him that made me feel very comfortable just being in the room with him. Yeah, that's the way it felt. He made me, he immediately made me feel comfortable. And uh, it was funny after I recorded the track, we did a couple takes and he picked one. And I went in the control room and uh, the rest of the guys were going to go do their parts again. And he started in on them, but he just turned to me and gave me a smile. <laughs> you know, this kind of said it all, you know. Right. And uh, so that was that was interesting. But, uh, yeah, to answer your question, I just, for for whatever reason, anything that was funky, I loved it. And I tried to learn it. And I have no idea why to this day, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. So. It's always interesting how you how you come into things. Like I came in, I came in to funk. I look at it like I came in through the back door because I came in listening to hip hop, right? And that's all I listened to. And okay. I was so I was so naive at the time. I didn't even realize that all of these that all of these beats were old funk tunes. I didn't know that when I was younger because right. I was like, you know, I started listening to hip hop when I was eight, nine, ten years old, and then I would hear like. You know, I would hear James Brown and I'm like, hey, they sampled like, you know, Eric B and Rakim or something. Or I'll be like, oh, that's the Eric B and Rakim song. And my brother's like, no, 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 it's the other way around. And I started to slowly learn, you know, that's, I think that's why I love, I love funk so much is because it's just, to me, it just feels like, it just feels like hip hop, hip hop, you know, without the rappers over top of it. Yeah. And it's, it's got its own thing too. It's like, it kind of, it's goes beyond music in a way. Um, or any, <coughs> anything that's real good, once you hit that zone, it's pretty magical, mm-hmm. you know, and you might not hit that 
every time you go for it. But when you do, it makes you always look to, to be there. And that, that zone I'm talking about is when the rhythm section is one entity and everybody's supporting everybody else mm-hmm. to, make, to make it work. No ego, nothing. And uh, that's when it's really, really good. And I kind of took a page out of uh, a long time ago. I saw an interview with Jaco Pastorius where he said, well, you know, you can get away with playing anything as long as you play the groove at the same time. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so ever since I read that, I said, that's how I feel. You know, I can't do a fill or anything unless it helps the groove of the music, unless it helps the music. And a lot of times what, what I don't play is more important than what I do play. Um, some of the, one of the, some of the best fills I've ever been able to do are ones where I've been able to find the exact right point for silence. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, uh, you know, it's mesmerizing to a crowd. If you do it in the right place, it's like, oh, it's like this deep breath comes out. But just leaving room to let things happen and nurture what is happening and support everything. So I've always been, I've always felt like I have to support everything and say there's one guy in the rhythm section that isn't supporting anything or he's doing something that's that's not what would work with what I was doing. I will change what I'm doing to make everything work. Mm. So it's, uh, and I think that's a product of most of my learning experience other than the teachers I got was, uh, just playing along with, with, uh, records, anything I can get my hand on and learning what the drummer was doing. And so that kind of really speeds up your learning process in a lot of ways. Cause already you're learning what's going to work in a lot of different musical situations. Right. Right. Uh, if you, if you're right in the, the pocket with it mm-hmm. and you're also being influenced by, you know, depending on what you're listening to great drummers pockets. I mean, half the most of the stuff I picked apart. It's funny. I didn't, I didn't find out about it, but, uh, Who's it? What's the drummer's name in the Wrecking Crew? Uh, he just recently passed uh, away. Hal Blaine. Um, Hal Blaine, right? I didn't know it, but a lot of the stuff I learned early on was Hal Blaine playing, and you know I never knew it till because I never bothered to read who was playing drums. I wasn't interested. All I was interested in, in was the what I liked, and I wanted to learn what I liked. You know, and I didn't care who was playing it. And uh, then I found out later on that. Um, I was listening to Peter Erskine, uh, with weather report and I was saying, wow, that's just how I'd play that. (laughs) And, oh man, I do that. I do exactly that. And so it kind of freaked me out a little bit. So I did a little research because you could do it with the internet. And I went back to some uh, old records I had picked apart back in the day. And I'd say about 70% of them. Peter Erskine was playing on him. <laughs> so without even knowing it, I was picking apart all of Peter Erskine's stuff and never even knew it because I never read who was all on right. it. I never cared. Nice. And so, uh, but now in my old age, I'm, uh, I've got the time to, and the, the 
I have the time and the uh, patience to uh, learn things I've always wanted to learn mm -hmm. and try things I've always wanted to try. So uh, my only disappointing feeling is that there, I know there's not enough time to learn everything I want to learn. Yep. Um, so years ago, I just made up my mind, okay, it's just going to be a process. And uh, I discovered a real interesting way to practice uh, recently by accident. I, I have a, one of those camper vans, mm -hmm. and, and I fell off the roof and um, onto concrete. Ooh. And, yeah, and I managed to, you know, managed to get my feet under me, but, you know, I still hit on my wrist and my hand. And a piece of wood went into the palm of my hand. Oh, man. I had to go, I had, I had to, go to the hospital and get it taken out. And uh, so I couldn't use my right hand for like a week and a half. So I took stick control and I just, I, I played the click with the hi-hat and I played uh, the left hand part with the left hand. Uh, and then um, the right hand was my right foot. And I did that for uh, about a week straight. And um, I, cause I had been working on my left hand and I, if I play my left hand on its own, it feels totally different from my right hand. It doesn't feel the same. It's a totally different feeling. Now, when you play drums, if you're right-handed, usually your right hand pulls your left hand along. So you're used to the combination, but when you do them individually, it's very different. And, uh, especially my left hand, because my left hand is crap. And, uh, so I was, <laughs> I was working on it, but this accident really made me focus in on it. Cause I knew I couldn't use my right hand for anything at that point. And, uh, after a week of doing that, the, pr the, the progression of what I could do was, uh, major compared to how the progression was going the way I was doing it before. So sometimes the, the simplest thing can help you out. You know, if you direct it towards the drums, I like usually I'll sit, uh, I'll sit down on the drums once a day, whether it's whether I have a long practice session or I just, or I'm recording something or I just sit down if I'm boiling some eggs, cause I've got drums right. sets in different parts of the house. I'll just sit down on the drums and usually, if I sit down for 10 or 15 minutes, that's where all the invention is. And I, I, I do things that I've never done before. And then I remember them and I turn, you know, I turn them into something. So um, it depends on, you know, practicing. I have different purposes when I sit down. Like if I sit down, I'm trying to do something I can't do and I'm reading it out of a book. And I know it's going to take me a long time. I set my mind. Okay, don't be in a hurry, Keith. Just take it as it goes. Right, right. <laughs> you know, uh, or if I sit down to record something, you know, that's a whole nother headspace. And uh, and then I, I I did go down the tunnel of you know once I realized, wow, I've got this time to practice stuff I've always wanted to practice and learn, and. Uh, I really dug into it, you know, and then when I went out to play, I sounded like the book, you know, <laughs> and so, so I uh, realized that I had to put 50% of my time in 
on just improvising on the instrument, you know, right. no metronome, nothing, just sitting down and improvising on it or improvising with music. Right. So I had to, I had to level that off, but, uh, I always find out the hard way that with that stuff. You right. Know? Yeah. I'm the, I'm the same way. One line in the dream symbol family that I think is really cool is the dark matter family. They have the flat earth, the moon ride, and the dark matter energy. And although they're all made a little bit differently, they all involve the dark matter process. And this is really cool. Check this out. They take a symbol that is already finished and then put it back in the oven, hand hammer it, and then shock it with cold water, and then put it back in the oven. And what happens is the ash and the soot from the oven are fused to the top layer of the metal, which give it this really, really unique sound. And you know what? I want to let you hear exactly what this process does to a symbol. Check them out. To learn more about Dream Symbols, their Dark Matter line, and all their great products, be sure to check out dreamsymbols.com. It's interesting talking about practice. Um, and so earlier in the week, we released an episode with John Riley, and he had talked about not playing with a metronome when he was younger because there were not enough metronome there there weren't any metronomes that were loud enough to to play. Right. So he just played along with records all the time. And what I've noticed more and more is, <clears throat> excuse me, that people who have amazing feel, amazing pocket, have played on a lot of the great records that we all love. When I talk to them they grew up just playing to records. And I think sometimes we get lost in the trying to play with a metronome into a click and not, and not focusing enough time on playing music, playing with the record and things like that. And for you, when you mentioned, Oh yeah, I I was playing along with records when I was a kid, how much of that bled into your playing and, and how important do you think it's been for you all these years playing along with records versus just sitting and playing on a practice pad or playing to a click track and working out particular patterns around the kit? Um, it was major uh, because the, the, the most feedback I've gotten from some uh, great musicians that I've been fortunate enough to play with, um, they told me that it's comfortable to play with me. Now, whatever that means, Mm -hmm. but I took it to mean that because I grew up playing along with records and I'd never get that, I'd never give that experience up for anything because I could play along with anybody I could get my hands on. Right. Um, As a result, when I play with people, I don't listen to me. I listen to the total sound and I don't consciously do that. It's just what I trained myself to do over the years was I'm trying to be part of this record I'm playing. Mm -hmm. And, and so in order for it to be fun and, and, uh, for me, and, uh, I had to really, really fit in and play musically. And when you're playing along with a song, there's a strict set of parameters you're, you're dealt with there that you have to deal with. If you go outside of that, it sounds like crap. So I spent (laughs) all my time trying to sound as good as the drummer on a record or better. And, uh, 
I think that, you know, I can't approach a gig where, like I said, I can't put in a fill for the sake of putting in a fill. Uh, how did you learn? I mean, how I did can, you learn I, that? I can, but I don't. How did you learn? <laughs> right, right, right. How did you learn that? Is that from playing with records? That's from playing with records. And uh, also what really helped uh, where, where, where I really started coming into my own where I thought I might have a career doing this was when I started recording constantly. Um, now, I was lucky because I was thrown in in a recording situation. I was recording maybe four or five tracks at a day sometimes uh and then going in the city doing sessions so everything was in a studio and i only got one you know maybe a second time to hear it you know you'd go in you do a take producer might call you come in and listen to it and make some comments but while we were doing that i was always listening okay i pushed it pushed it a little bit here Okay, everyone's pushing at the end. I might want to pull back a little bit here. Forget that, Phil. That was crap. Okay. <laughs> you know, and I would judge it like that. And then when I went in to do it again, I would fix that. Of course, after years of doing that, after a while, you kind of know what works for what genre you're playing in. You know what's going to work and what isn't. But I think it was from hearing myself back, which is a hard experience right. <laughs> even even now i mean you know i've got a re studio at home and you would think i could put on the record button and not care but i don't care where you're recording once that record once you know you're recording it's a different mindset and you try and play the most tasteful thing you can play that really helps the music and uh so i think playing with records I learned in that doing by doing that and it saved me a lot of time because I might go through 10 books and maybe one bar of one of those books would be something that was actually used on a record, right. you know, um, or it was interesting as, as I got a more into fusion and things like that. A lot of the things I was learning on the practice pad and, teachers were teaching me i would learn them but they would never come into my playing and then i'd be learning like a fusion tune or something i go oh that's why they wanted me to learn that i get right. it you know so it's just uh the books and the exercises and challenging yourself is good because it keeps you fresh because i don't play anything like i used to I can't, I've heard tapes of me from 40 years ago and I, I couldn't, I don't even remember playing that stuff. I don't even remember learning that stuff. I said, did I play that? You know, and I play totally different. So your, your playing is always progressing. It's always changing. And, uh, so, you know, what keeps me fresh is always trying to learn new things now. And, uh, you know, it's nice to learn something off of a record. Mm -hmm. um, it's good. I think a good practice schedule is spend some time doing something you absolutely can't do slowly to get it going and 
whittle it away at it. You know, every time you sit down, like what I do is I keep maybe 10 or 20 things in my head that uh, I'm working on that I'd like to be able to do proficiently. Mm -hmm. And when I sit down on the drums, if I don't have anything creative come out of me, I'll immediately go to that. Or I might just warm up with those things. And then as you go along, maybe after a year, those things, you try and force them in your playing, they never work. But right. you'll be doing a gig, and one of those things you've been working on all of a sudden pops out in the music. And you go, ah, <laughs> it arrived. You can't force it, you know? Right. It's, it's like this, this magic pill that stays in your system for, well, it, it's like you, you keep, failing you know when you practice it and then after you know a few months or however long you know uh but i always try try and keep uh several things that i'm working on um and uh i just hit those every time i sit down at the drums for a warm-up and uh maybe stay on one longer and but you don't force them in your playing but uh i think you could play with the best musicians in the world with recordings. Um, you don't have to go anywhere. I mean, especially since everyone's on a COVIDcation. Right. I mean, now now's the time to do it. Um, if, if and uh, it's it's a joyful process. It's fun. It's uh, it it gives you musical ideas, and and it teaches you how to hold a band together and what really works and what makes people feel the music. And uh, I think you're absorbing, like you said, a lot of great drummer, drummers' grooves, but you're not only absorbing their groove, you're absorbing the whole band's groove right. on that particular session. And uh, sometimes you have to sit back and take it a bar at a time till you understand it, you mm -hmm. know? I was trying to figure out uh, Jocko, uh, Jocko's tune, Teen Town. Now, that drum part always puzzled me. And uh, it was because, you know, I try and play it like a drummer would, and it never sounded right. <laughs> I mean, I, it just never really sounded right. I heard Peter Erskine play it. It just didn't sound the same. So I said, okay, wait a minute. Now, Jocko played drums on this. He didn't do any overdubs. Okay, how did he do it? And then I thought, okay, if I didn't play drums, if I didn't have any lessons, how would I play this? Okay, it would be hand over hand on the hi-hat instead of right hand, left hand. And... uh so I did it that way, and it sounded exactly like what he did. <laughs> You're saying oh, he so was, was playing funny, all of, Yeah, and basically, no, 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 basically he was going back and forth on the hi-hat, left, right, left, right. And, you know, I was basically playing, I tried it open hand, and I tried it right hand lead, and it, you know, like I usually play, and it didn't sound the same. I was trying to do it like a drummer mm -hmm. would. And... Jocko wasn't a drummer, so he did it like a person sitting down on his drums for the first right, time, right. the easiest, most direct route to what he wanted. And uh, I found, you know, once videos started coming out, you know, I used to figure out Steve Gadd's stuff and 
all these guys. And uh, I would always be too complex. I would, I would figure it out much more. It was, it was much easier what they did. When I finally got to see a video of them doing it, I went, oh, man. <laughs> I, went, I went way around the Mulberry Bush to get that same I thing. was the same way when I heard and, Sissy Strut and tried to play it and then saw how, uh, how he plays it. And I was like, oh, this, he plays it open-handed. And I, I never knew that. But I think it, in my time coming up where there weren't videos, where if you wanted to figure something out, you had to slow the record down with your finger. Right. Um, or slow the tape machine down. Um, you never quite got it perfect, mm -hmm. you know, because you couldn't see the guy doing it. So what ended up happening was you would get some of it and you would end up with your own thing. And I think that's why these days there's a lot of people that sound very similar uh, on the drums. Um, and I think it's because all the information is there uh to see mm -hmm. you know so there's and there's no interpretation so right there's no interpretation between that where people have to figure it out for themselves i remember i asked vinnie caliuta one time i said how come you never do a video of this because i want people if they want to steal my shit they could figure it out the same way i, <laughs> I did. love it <laughs> <laughs> but he's right you know he's right because vinnie doesn't sound like anybody right. else you know it's immediately him, like Will Calhoun. Mm -hmm. He plays with the intensity of like Elvin Jones, but it, he does stuff that no one else does, so I know it's immediately him when I hear it. You know, uh, Peter's going to same thing. I know it's him. Right. Uh, Billy Cobham, unmistakable. Harvey Mason, unmistakable. Right. Steve Gadd, unmistakable. Those guys had no videos to look at. Yep. All they had were gigs, you know, and uh, and I think uh, I've I see a lot of uh, similar chops these days, which I find it extremely inspiring and interesting. I pick them apart and learn them, you know, because uh, it's a whole nother way to look at the drums, which I never even thought of before. And it, uh, if you use it musically, it could be brilliant. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, I think that's that's always the the rub for me, and and I've preached about this on the podcast a lot, and I think that people are probably tired of hearing me say it. But I, one, I think that if you love chops and everything, that's totally cool, and if that's what gets you into playing, that's totally cool. And even if you want to work on it on your own and and really be proficient at it, I think that's cool. But at the end of the day, if you're not music, if you're not using it musically, but you want to be a musician and you want to play with other people there's a disconnect there. And I think that we need to, that's what needs to be addressed. And you said it perfectly. It's all great. As long as you use it musically. I'm glad you brought up that subject. I remember, uh, well, for me, uh, when I first saw guys doing the gospel chops type thing, like Eric, uh, Moore, uh, Tony Royster, uh, Thomas Pigeon, um, those guys, when they first came out in videos were popping out, I remember a lot of guys were upset because uh, it was totally different. And really, you know, I did a little study on it. And these kids have basically taken an exercise that Dave Weckl gave away on a video in the 80s, um, which is really difficult. 
And, uh, but I was inspired by it. So I just set out to learn it. You know, I just, I just started messing with it and learning it. And it's really difficult because it's all linear and there's nothing supporting anything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so to get the time correct, it's a whole different way to feel the drums, which I had never done. And, uh, but I found it to be, uh, very inspiring because you end up doing things you would never think of doing. And it gives you a lot more facility on the drums. And it made sense actually, because in my day it was, uh, okay, you work on a practice pad, you know, you might put your feet in, but you work on a practice pad, then you work things out on a kit. But, uh, this was like working out rudiments on the kit and, therefore getting all this facility that was never really um, brought out on a drum kit before. So I was at a gig uh, in New York, uh, this uh, special event we all played at, and uh, Will Calhoun was there. Um, oh, gee, another drummer plays with, uh, played with David Bowie. Oh, I forget his name. Zach, uh, I forget his last name. Um, Zachary Ilford, he was there. Uh, then uh, Lauren Hill's drummer was there, um, and uh, Lenny White was mm -hmm. there, right? So, and there were a few other drummers, I forget. And they were all sitting around talking. So I, I said, uh, so what do you guys think about this new gospel chop stuff? And, oh, man, what did I say that for? <laughs> they all, you know, they all chimed in. You know, I could tell it was like a threat, right. you know, right. and uh, – so from the way back in the way corner of the room, I hear it's not music, like really loud, right? And uh, I look, and it's Lenny White, right? And I said, I said, and he starts walking over. I said, Lenny, you wanna you wanna qualify that a little bit? You know, explain that comment a little bit. He goes, in one minute, he, he went in the bathroom, and then he came out, and he explained to every drummer sitting there, and my son plays drums. He was there with me. I, and I told him, I said, you couldn't pay for a moment like this. You better pay attention. And Lenny broke down what he thought a drummer's job was. And he said, basically what it boiled down to with Lenny, he said, it's just drums. It's not music. But what I've found is if you take that technique and approach it musically, it is musical. It can be very musical. So uh, I... My advice to you know anybody is learn all of it that you can learn. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a wonderful instrument. Anybody that gets on it does something you haven't thought of. I don't care what level they're at. I've learned stuff from students yeah. of mine. That, you know, little kids that have come in and said, well, I made up my own rudiment. Or I did this on a cymbal. And I, I've never seen anyone right, do that. Right. You know, so, so I said, I've told them I'm stealing that, you know, and uh, always keep an open mind, you know, don't shut anything yeah. out. And, uh, I was watching a whole generation, my generation of drummers shut this stuff out because learning it is diabolical, yeah. man. You got to put in, you got to put in some work and it takes a while before it starts sounding like something. So it's a leap of faith as well. But I think it's, a uh, drums always progress. There's always new things that someone does. They always, push the envelope and I like to learn everything I see, you know, and these young kids are very inspiring 
And I've heard some people do musical things with it. Um, not very often, but, right. <laughs> you know, uh, but um, I think at the end of the day, you are, you're part of the band and your job is to hold everything together and make it feel good mm -hmm. and, uh, and support everybody, what everybody's doing. And maybe sometimes just stop playing so you can st build up again. Um, uh, one thing I don't like about the whole gospel chops type thing is uh, I never see any dynamics. Right, right. Uh, so, um, you know, if you take that genre, learn it, and then start putting dynamics with it and different tonal qualities with it, uh, rather than, uh, you know, three symbols stuck right. together. Uh, you, you can get some very interesting things. So I, I loved what Lenny said, but I wouldn't personally, I wouldn't close the door on it. I was interested. I said, wow, this, this is brilliant. I want to, I want to know how to do that. You know, it's just, I felt exactly the way I felt when I saw Billy Cobham for the first right. time. It's like, I want to know how to do that. I want to learn how to do that. It didn't, demoralize me like the there were drummers sitting next to me breaking their sticks saying they'd never play again but to me it was inspiring something to reach for so uh it's i think it's really great because uh it's such an original instrument and you're a drummer so you know you have to really want to play drums to play drums because it's not easy yeah. yep. you know some people it comes easier to than others but for me it was never um, it was easy to a point and then it got hard, you know, once I got to a certain level and then it, it just keeps getting harder. Yeah. Well, I think that the, it's, the progress, you know, when you first start every day, you make progress because you're a beginner and every day you're learning something new and, and you're just, the progress is right. coming so fast. But then after you get to a certain point, it's like, now you're just fine tuning everything. And that I, I agree. That's when it gets hard. Um, one of, one of the other things that you, that you commented on with, with gospel chops that I think that's really important is the dynamics. And I look at, if you look at someone like a, like Steve Gadd, right? Everyone knows that Steve Gadd plays Radomy Q's and Paradiddles, you know, that's his deal. And right. everyone, I mean, granted it's Steve Gadd and he has pocket and all these other things, but that's the stuff that he plays inside of the Radomy Q's and the, and the Paradiddle stuff. It's it's all just dynamics and moving accents around. And, mm -hmm. and he has this extensive vocabulary built off of those two things. Imagine what people could do with these gospel chops if they added dynamics and they added, you know, different accents and different things like that. And so I a hundred percent agree with you. Someone is going to do that. And someone's going to be the person that can play all of these gospel chops inside out, upside down, backwards, loud, quiet, and every dynamic in between. And they're going to, they're going to make a scene for sure. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's all, it's totally linear way of looking at the drums, which is interesting. It's just basically 16ths and triplets, mm -hmm. what it boils down to, but it's the combinations. And what I found was learning it. I didn't learn it the normal way. You know, I would take the lick that, that I picked out and I'd learn it, how the guy did it, which was right-handed and right-footed, but then I'd learn it left-handed, and then I'd alternate it, and then I would do it on top of a hi-hat that was keeping time. So I would make it, 
I would learn it and then I would take it farther. I would make it more of a challenge for myself because I'd think, okay, what's the hardest thing I can do? And uh, you really find out a lot about your plan, um, the faults in your plan, the things you can make better. Um, and uh, I found that it gave me a facility on the drums that I didn't have before, uh, a maneuverability is probably the better way to put it. Because you're practicing moves, which I never even thought of doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I just would, I wanted to hear something, I'd do it, and that would be it. I never thought about actually what I was doing, where <laughs> I just went by the sound. If it sounded like what I wanted to hear, that's, that's as far as I right. took it. And, uh, but I never really studied, okay, I got to move my hand here. So, you know, if, if you're learning a lick, it's easy to do it on a snare drum and the bass drum, but you start moving around the kit. Every drum is a different distance. It's a different, um, a different surface. Right. Um, so it really made me, you know, trying to learn that stuff really made me look at, uh, drums in a whole different way, which was interesting. And, uh, I feel lucky because I've got the old whole other way of looking at it down and you know and so i feel like uh well it'd be nice to have this facility too and mix it with mm -hmm. that because uh that's that's the unfortunate thing i like to see i'd like to see all the styles mixed in and you're right it will happen it's going to take some time but uh you know when i was when i was a kid i wanted to be ringo star you know so you know he was hitting hard <laughs> back then. And uh, so that's what I was trying to do back then. But the first record I learned, like I told you, was straight ahead swing record, you know, like as straight as you could, four, four on the bass drum, right. you know, da -da -da, da -da. and I really got, I really got into the swing. So I was lucky because when I moved to England, I was, I would tack and we did a lot of experimental music and I was, I infiltrated the jazz scene in the, in Europe. So I got to play with all these incredible guys, man. And like no one played in four. Right. four you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they had all these Indian drummers and all kinds of things going on. So I learned a ton over there and uh, that opened me up. And, you know, then I come back to the States and it's all, uh, this gospel chop stuff, so on there. I like to learn that too. So it'll every other instrument, you know. There's always people pushing the instrument, doing things with it. But basically, if you pick up a guitar, any guitar, it's going to have the same. The frets are in the same places. You know, you sit down at a piano, the keys are in the same mm -hmm. places. Drum sets not like that. Yeah. You set it up any way you want to set it up, <laughs> yep. you know, yep. use any drums you want to use. I don't think there's any other instrument like that where, where, where it's that. So basically the drum kit is an environment, which is a very old environment down to the basic, you know, the first instrument, um, which is always progressing and always, um, getting better and more knowledge about it. Not like all the other instruments, there's a lot of accepted rules, but drums, 
kids are breaking rules every time I see someone do something. And so, and not only that, it's playing drums is significant problem solving at, at a high rate of speed. So, um, you know, you won't find many good drummers that are senile <laughs> <laughs> if they're still playing, yeah. you know, because they, you've got to work it out. You know, you, I know, you know, you pra- you could practice in your head. You could be sitting on a plane practicing in your in your. They've mind. actually done studies about visual. that uh, with basketball and they had one group of people there. It was free throws and they did one group of people who uh, who did practice shooting one group of people who just thought about practicing and then another group of people who didn't practice practice at all. Obviously the people who didn't practice at all didn't get better. And the people who shot the free throws got, you know, 40% better. And the people who just thought about shooting free throws got like 35% better. Wow. Amazing. Hey, are you tired of coded drum heads chipping and flaking after only a few hours of play tired of premature denning and breakage? Well, welcome to the next generation of coated drum heads, Evan's new UV coating technology. They're made with proprietary inks and a new UV-like curing process, so these heads are able to withstand strikes, brush strokes, and rim shots better than anything on earth. That means you get to play heads that sound and look fresh for longer, and you can spend less time tuning and modifying and changing heads. They're available in one-ply and two-ply, as well as Evan's proprietary hydraulic and EMAD systems. Check them out by going to evansdrumheads.com. So I've been checking out the new Sonar SQ-1s, and let me tell you, these drums are sick. They're made out of birch, all right? Why, you ask? Because birch has balanced low, mid, and high ranges. So they sound really, really good in the recording studio, plus they sound great live. Now, this is some really cool stuff. They have a sound stabilizer system, and it's actually based on concepts applied in the automotive industry, and it's rubber to metal so that you're getting complete isolation from the shell. Not only that, the colors that they come in also resemble high-end automobiles, so they're all matte lacquer finishes. These kits are insane, and not only that, they sound amazing. To learn more about the SQ-1 series, go to sonar.com. Sometimes, you know, like I've tried to do... uh four times signatures at once. Um, and you know, I'd, I'd be laying in my hotel room, you know, on the floor, you know, with my feet yep, yep. and my hands, try trying to separate it in my brain. Um, but when I just thought about it, um, where actually everything would go, I was able to, to actually do it. And uh, the, actually the thing that started me on my search for, combining time signatures was uh um i heard this little solo on a record that steve gadd played on and it was just uh it was a five figure that he did which was one two one two three one two one two three or right left right left left right right right, left left and uh but he only did it for like a bar that 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 and then went into a solo but i took that little bar and started working with it and uh, then I decided, oh, this is a good way to figure out time signatures. One, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two. I can play that time signature with one hand. 
Um, so I learned how to do it against four because most music is in four. And then I added another two, which all of a sudden I have seven. So I'm accenting the first beat of every group. So one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three. And uh, then I put, uh, I wanted to get my feet involved. So I put uh, the uh, hi-hat on uh, four mm -hmm. and the bass drum on three. So I had three against four going on my feet. And then I tried to to knock it all together, and uh, it uh, you know it the the hardest thing at first was just trying to keep five going over four because um, my body wanted to jump back into four relentlessly. It was like giving myself a root canal for about a few <laughs> days till I got it, and then and it was very simple. So I came up with this thing where I could play five or seven or nine or 12 over four and three. And uh, I started teaching it at the London School of Music when I was there. And uh, I saw some famous drummers who will remain nameless <laughs> <laughs> who had come to a few clinics I did and were, I didn't mind that they were showing people it, but this exercise that I came up with, but they didn't have it. They didn't quite figure it out right. right, right, right. You know, they they were doing, it. and they didn't give me credit. You know, uh, that that's what that's what kind of hurt a little bit. But I thought, well, you know, I have had real good drummers steal things from me and even tell me they're stealing it. Saying, Keith, I like that. I'm stealing it. Imitation <laughs> you know? is so, a, is the highest form of flattery, right? Yeah. So I figured, okay, I got a compliment there. But uh, it was funny. I was playing with. Uh, Jonas Helborg, uh, we were doing some gigs, and I was warming up, and I started doing a little bit of that. And he goes, "What's that?" Because <laughs> I'm taking it way further, you know. Um, like I've I've done like a reverse triplet where it's crazy. Anyway, he goes, "What's that?" <laughs> and I said, "Oh, it's it's kind of an Indian rhythm because he knows all the Indian rhythms." And he goes, "Oh," he said. That's what you should be practicing," <laughs> he said. <laughs> you know, because he couldn't figure it out, but it, it was a groove. So the main thing is, uh, you know, whatever you're doing, as long as there's a, a pulse and a, and a real nice feel to it, uh, and it's musical, and because really, you said it yourself, dynamics is everything on the drum kit, absolutely everything. You could create so much tension with the right dynamics, but once you get to a certain level of loud, that's all it is. There's right. nowhere to go. It's just loud. And like, oh, wow, gee, that guy's up there chopping mm -hmm. wood, you know? And it's like, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, I love hearing guys like Steve Jordan just lay yeah. down a group. I mean, how would and, you want to have a conversation you know, with someone that was monotone the whole time? You know, yeah, that's <sighs> what it seems like, and it's it's impressive. It's you know, it's like someone getting beat up in a playground. You know, <laughs> some, of the, some of the like I've done little like long before there were shed sessions. I used to go out to a reservoir with this brilliant drummer I had met who uh, liked me, fortunately, and uh, he kind of sounded he was. Sounded like Tony Williams and Harvey Mason combined. Mm. It was really unbelievable. And we used to go out to a reservoir and just trade eights all day long. And uh, 
but we did it musically. Um, it, you know, he might start a fill and I'd finish it, you know, or I might start when he'd finish it, or we do something that worked together. And it was always a search for music, even with the drums. And uh, I've sat down. I remember I did a clinic uh, in Scotland once. Tony Williams was on the clinic. And they had us do an in-store. And uh, the in-store was, you know, it was crazy because the guys in Scotland had, uh, I guess, a local guy that they all liked. Um, his drums were all set up perfect. And they get and I and no one wanted to play in the in store, so I got <laughs> stuck with it to play with this guy. And uh, so the my drum set was set up like in a store window. <laughs> so you know, I sit down on it and I'm trying to pull the cymbal closer, you know, the hi hat close enough to play it. And this guy starts playing, you know. And Tony Williams is sitting there watching this, right? So you know, I tried to get something going with the guy and as soon as we got something going he'd start doing all these sh chops that weren't musical and didn't fit so i'd try and make what he was doing work and finally got fed up and i just broke it down to a press <laughs> roll and he had to follow me right and then i started playing with the level of the press roll and bringing it up and down and then i went to the cymbals and started playing off the cymbals and i made him play some music and uh, afterwards, Tony Williams came up and he goes, nice one, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> I got added. I, I'm thinking, man, I can retire yeah, no. now. Tony Williams gave no. me a compliment. Shoot, I, you know, but he knew what was going on. He saw what was going on and he saw that I, I was trying to make some music. And this other guy was trying to right. prove something to him, to whoever, his buddies. And uh, so, you know, I. That was interesting, you know, that uh, like uh, I got a I remember I did a the Sun City record and uh, uh, we were late there. Miles Davis was going to show up and I had uh, I had done the drums on the track and uh, Miles was supposed to play on it and everything. So we get there late and Miles is like all he's in. People are interviewing them and asking them all kinds of questions. And so I didn't, I knew better than not, I didn't say anything. I just kept my mouth shut. And every once in a while, he'd look at me like, hey, go say something. I didn't say nothing. So then they're interviewing him and they said, listen, man, Miles, what is it about this track that you like? And he goes, oh, man, can't you hear it? It's them drums. <laughs> So I'm sitting there getting a compliment from Miles. He doesn't even know he's giving me a compliment. It made my day. I didn't have to say a word. I let everyone else talk. And uh, so it's really down to uh, if you really feel the music and you're really playing the music and you're listening to the people you play with, you can hang with anybody. You really can. You know, and no matter what level of expertise you have, if you can hear the music and you know what everybody's doing and you're not lost, uh, then you can survive in any environment. I've played with some crazy people I thought I'd never be able to play with. And I was able to make it work and they loved it because I just played for the music. So that's the, that's the most important thing I try and teach people, uh, students. I try and put them in a musical environment. I have to play with records. Um, 
and I have them improvise and come up with their own ideas. And I think that's more valuable in a lot of ways. Because I agree. So where you mentioned teaching, where's the best place for people to reach out to you, keep an eye on what you have going on? uh, You know, if they want to schedule lessons with you, all that kind of stuff, what's the best way? Well, I was teaching at a local music store near me, but since COVID took over, um, I haven't been doing that. And uh, so I go through spurts where I'll teach a lot and then I won't teach for a long time. So I'm in one of those I won't teach for a long time spurts. (laughs) (laughs) But um, usually, um, like when I'm I've done online lessons. I've usually just put up a little advert that, where people can get a mm-hmm. hold of me at uh, at my email. But right now, um, I'm spending more time trying to teach myself uh, at this point. I know that sounds kind of selfish, but uh, I don't think that sounds selfish at just, all. But teaching for me takes everything I have out of me. Right. I feel. Every note that that student plays, I'm with with them on every note. And I'll tell you something: at the end of the day, I am worn out because <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, not all the notes are in the right place, you know, and it's it's uh, debilitating, really. So I can only do it in spurts. Um, like I I taught at schools, I've done all that, but when COVID hit, I just stopped because I. I just didn't want to take the chance with my age. I'm turned 66. Yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. But, but drums has kept me in shape. I mean, I can fall off my, my van at 66 and not break anything. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> if that's the barometer, then you are doing well, my man. <laughs> well, most people fall in their kitchen at my age I, and break a hip. I get it. You know? I get it. My, uh, my parents are, are older. They're in their 70s, and, and they're like, they're like spring chickens because they're always, they're always out running errands and and I mean they do they war- yard work all kinds of stuff and like my they sent me a picture and like my seventy five year old mom and my seventy three year old dad are on their roof fixing the roof I'm like what are you doing and they're like what do you mean what's what's the problem with this I'm like okay keeps you young you know mm-hmm. yeah keeps definitely you young. so and I think playing the drums is uh, very I think good so for too. that. Uh, for a lot of things for mentally, uh, you know, especially during these crazy times, uh, you know, I think mentally it's good for you. Physically, it's good for you for sure. Yeah, physically, it's definitely good for you, you know, and uh, it's interesting as you as your body gets older, you like me personally, I had to get more scientific about what I was doing. Um because when I was younger, I used to just push through mm-hmm. stuff. Even if I was doing it wrong, I'd be able to pull it off. But uh, now I've had to take more stock. And I notice a lot of players as they get older, they take more stock and refine what they're doing. So they're using the least amount of energy to, to pull off what they need right. to pull off. And uh, so uh, it that's it's always been uh, a healthful a healthy thing to do because if you're in really if you're not in good shape you can't play drums i mean uh not not for a long time (laughs) because your body's really taking hits i think probably the most amazing guy for that was buddy rich that guy 
I saw him at a concert. Uh, you know, this was in his later years, but he was still kicking it. And it was in Milwaukee. They had several stages. And he started this drum solo on the cymbals. And I just knew it was going to be like one of these monumental moments, right? And two people start f- fighting in the front row. So Buddy, you know, signals to the sax player to end the tune. And they end the tune. By the time he's on the front of the stage, they're carrying this guy out. Buddy says, well, that's one way to get <laughs> home. And, uh, and then, you know, he said, see you tomorrow night. So I managed to get backstage and I saw him. He came backstage and he looked like he was going to die. I mean, he was just hunched over in a chair, took everything out of that man to do that performance that they had man. done, you know, and he was, and he was going to end it with a drum solo. And I guess his health wasn't that good at that time, but it didn't stop him from uh, the drums taking mm-hmm. him, you know, that, that sound he wanted to get that intensity. And uh, I, it really hit me seeing him like that. I went, wow, see, I, it's not just me, you know, because sometimes you'll have a gig and you'll feel great. Other times you'll have a gig and you feel like you were one legged man in an ass kicking right. contest that was right. losing. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's, it's, it's always different. I mean, every time I go to play a live gig, it's like the first gig yeah. Yeah. to me. It's never, I think if it changed, I'd probably take up plumbing. Or, <laughs> you know, I, I could have done, I think I could have done a lot of things. Probably could have been good at a lot of things, but uh, I, drums was the, it's, a, it's the thing I like right. the best. And I think I like doing live gigs better than recording or anything else because once you hit that note, it's gone yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're creating something in real time, and and you know, obviously, you can record it, but you can never, you can't, you can't replay that experience. You know, I love right. It. And the best thing you can do with a with a group of musicians is leave space for new things to happen. Um, don't crowd the space. Leave enough space for mm-hmm. everybody. And then nurture those new things that happen. And see, I I don't know if you ever done a gig where everything's been perfect. Anything you improvised came off. Oh, the nights where you feel like you can't make a mistake. Yeah, right. And then then you try and do that the next night, it never happens because you're trying to do it. The night that it happened, you were probably late for the gig. You you were setting up in front of people, you know, and no one had a chance to think about what they yep. were going to do. It just, it had, so if a drummer can support what's going on, but leave room to let things naturally happen. Um, that's uh, a great thing uh, to aspire to. And, you know, if someone's playing a lot of nonsense, just hide the one for about 20 bucks. <laughs> no symbol crash, not a clue. And they'll soon stop that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, you want to get cute? We're going to play a little game called Where's the One? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, because some people get up on stage and just masturbate. Yeah. I'm sorry. And, you know. I did a lot when I was no young. Reason. When I was a young player. And we're all guilty. We are I had a guitar guilty. player just so, stop playing in the middle of a gig and look back and was like, all right, man, go ahead. 
<laughs> and I, it was embarrassing, you know, and he, I don't think he handled it the best way, but, uh, but he was like, go ahead, man. He was like, go, you want to play all them? No, go ahead. Play them, play the notes. Then I was just, yeah, like, dumbfounded. I know that one. I've had, I've had people, you know, well, it was, it wasn't, it was usually when the power went out or something and all of a sudden it was drum right. solo. No, this was because I was playing too many notes and he was like, get it out of your system. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, um, you know, it, it's funny. Um, you could, I threw my, um, my, my first experience when I first thought I could pretty much play pretty good. I started driving in New York and just getting in any jam session mm -hmm. I could get in, you know, and, uh, I was really fortunate. There was this bass player from Aztec two step, uh, that was, they were, fairly big band at the time and i was jamming with them and he goes you know you got a lot of talent um and you've got really good ideas but you need to listen to like steve gatt and harvey mason and he named all these drummers and so i went home and bought all those records and started listening to those guys and picking their stuff apart and uh, really got that whole genre of music down and then when I went back to New York and hit the jam sessions again, everyone loved what I was doing. So it uh, it helps to keep your ears open because, you know, best thing you can do is just go and play with musicians that are better than you. Always try and play with people that are better than you because they will force you to, to stretch yourself and, and get out of your comfort zone. And... Uh, I've been on the other end of that spectrum and uh, now I, you know, I think that's payback for all the, <laughs> for all the times I wasn't on that end of the spectrum, right. you know? And uh, so uh, it gave me some knowledge about uh, how to mm -hmm. deal with that, but I would not trade what I've done for anything in the world. I once asked this, uh, I was in new Orleans and I was watching this guy. He had to be 70 years old playing drums. Him and the bass player were killing. And afterwards, I got to talk to him. And I said, hey, man, it must be nice playing with a bass player with such good time. He goes, yeah, he ain't got good time. I'm the one that's keeping the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, tell me something. Would you do it again? He said in a microsecond. Huh. He didn't even, he didn't even yeah. pause. And well, so, we've all had the... Uh... It's a... We've all had the well. I don't know. I have, but I I remember playing in a band. And the guy would, you know, the bass player would count something off in four, and the song was in three, or or you know, whatever he would count off. He go one, two, three, four, doom, 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 and you're like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> like not even, not even close to the right tempo or anything. But anyway, I'm sure you and I could trade war stories forever. <laughs> no, I I I played. One time I played with Eddie Harris. Um, this was uh, about six months before he passed away, uh, the sax player. And um, this guy could solo just using the pads on his saxophone. He was incredible. And uh, anyway, I couldn't make the rehearsal because I had a session. And so I show up at the next rehearsal, and they introduce me to Eddie Harris. And he goes, oh, you had a so-and-so that didn't show up yesterday. Right? <laughs> and I went, I went, oh, no, I'm in trouble now. So I get behind the kit, and I'm just 
opening my stick bag and I hear blues and D, one, two, three, four, just like that, right? And I managed to get a stick up to the ride cymbal. And, ding, 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 and I was in there with the ride cymbal and then I sat down and I'm getting the rest of my stuff out. But I made that count off. And I'm sure if I hadn't have made that count off, it would have been hell right. the rest of the week with, with Eddie. But that was a challenging experience because he would pick a tune. If he played the same tune, which he rarely did, it would be a totally different style than the night before. It would be a totally different tempo, you know? Um, so he was really old school. And uh, that's what I think is kind of missing. Uh, the old school guys, uh, the young kids don't get a chance to, to get beat up by the old school guys. Maybe it, ha maybe it happens in church. I don't know. But uh, like even, even the, uh, the rhythm sections I've worked with, we always – our kids that play instruments, we've sent them out with the boys. Hey, I want you to beat them up a little bit. Take them out on a road yeah. for a while. <laughs> Get yep. the kick out. And, and, you know, it's like a rite of passage. <laughs> but, uh, I love it. Anyway, I'm just blithering it. Man, I'm here. this. Sorry. No, I, I love it. I could, I could talk to you forever. Um, but I am, I, I will wrap it up. But I, I do want to say one, thank you very much for, for taking the time to chat and, and sharing all of these amazing stories. And two, thank you for the amazing music that you've put out into the world all of these years. And, and three, thank you for still chasing after it. And thank you for being an inspiration to all of us who are maybe a little bit younger than you, or even your age or older than you, who are looking to some people like you to keep that fire alive inside of us as well. So I commend you for that. I love your perspective on how this is a never ending journey and you, you embody that and, and you are setting an example for all of us. So I appreciate that as well. Oh, it's very nice of you to say that, but, uh, a wise drummer, Kenwood Denard once told me, learn something new every day. I agree. And it's, it's that simple, you know, and, uh, I remember seeing him play, well, he was playing Teen Town on the drums with his left hand, and he was playing the bass part on a keyboard with his right hand. <laughs> <laughs> and the bartender was shaking his head saying, oh, he's not human, he's not human. But uh, Kenwood is like one of those phenomenal drummers, and he, he was a, I just want to mention, he was a, a big influence to um, seeing him with uh, Pat Martino when he was like 18 or 19. Uh, he definitely was way ahead of his time. And for those listening, he is a professor at Berkeley now. So he's accessible. And uh, I've sent quite a few students nice. to him. And I think he's probably, I think he's one of the greatest drum teachers there is. So I'll end with that. Um, he's Definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, we could have a whole episode about Kenwood Denard about how amazing he is, and and uh, I've never had him on the podcast, but I'm a huge fan of his. So uh, anyone who's listening should definitely go go check him out as well. Oh, definitely sick. Um, there's an album called Joyous Lake, the Pat Martino album. It's quite an old album. I think it's, uh, I think Kenwood recorded it when he was right out of Berkeley, and. To this day, it's ahead of nice. its time. So uh, that would be worth seeing. 
you know, there's not much film of Kenwood playing or anything. There's not right. much out there. Right. But he's definitely seen the beyond <laughs> of drum and yep. back, you know. So uh, that's uh, one of the I, – I just wanted to mention his name, you know, because we mentioned some of the greats. And uh, I wanted to he's mention definitely him. in that uh, in that rarefied air for sure. So, uh, Well, Nick, I really enjoy your podcast. You so much. And they're always very – Formative, and I was thrilled to do this um, when I was when I was asked, and I really appreciate it because I think it's one of the few uh, podcasts I've heard that's just every time I've listened to one, it's just taken me, and I've I've had to stop what I was doing and check Man. out the whole thing or save it so I could listen to it later. So I I appreciate that immensely, and I'm so glad that we got you on. So now you are you are part of the the library as well that we have of all these amazing episodes. It wouldn't be possible without guys like you coming on and, and sharing their wisdom and sharing their stories. And and I appreciate you that for that for sure. Well, drummers are the only ones that are interested. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so thanks again, Nick. Of course, of course, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, Keith. All right, you stay safe out there. I will. You do the same. All right. Bye-bye. There you have it. The pioneer himself, Mr. Keith LeBlanc. You can check out the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 588. Also, check out Keith's website, keithleblanc.com. That's Keith, L-E-B-L-A-N-C.com. Also, if you dig this podcast, do me a favor, leave a rating, you leave a review. You can do it on iTunes. It takes a minute, lets people know that they should be listening to this podcast, and I would really appreciate it. And other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com. Revoice Media.